All right. I feel like uh, it's already been a great morning so far, and uh, we still have more to do in God's Word. But uh, today is, as you guys know, today is the uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, nobody cares exactly, right? At this point, it's just all about the food uh, that we eat and who we're, who we're with, which uh, I, did, I did look this up uh, just for fun that uh, on this day, there will be 25 million pounds of potato chips eaten today. Yeah, that's nothing compared to the... (laughs) (laughs) I can't even say it. It's just so crazy. 2.5 billion chicken wings that will be eaten today. 2.5 billion chicken wings that will be eaten today. So enjoy your afternoon. Uh, it's the last day of football, and, and really nobody in this room really cares that much about it. But what we do care about in this room is the study of God's Word, and that's what we're going to do this morning, and that is why we're here. We want to hear from God, and the way we do that is by opening up our Bible and seeing what He has to say for us. So turn to Titus chapter 1. We're studying the book of Titus. We're specifically studying in this certain section that we're in in Titus in verses 5 to 9. Uh, leadership within the church. God has called certain men to lead in the church as elders, as shepherds, and they serve as the example to the flock on how to live a godly life. Elders have certain qualifications. Elders are not perfect. Uh, Elders are human. Elders are sinners. But nonetheless, they have established themselves as men who are above reproach and who are examples to the flock. I said this to Aaron last Monday, two weeks ago. I said to Aaron, man, we're getting into a section of Scripture. I'm reading and I'm studying, and I'm feeling the weight and the conviction that comes having to uh, be an example to the flock and having to feel this every single week as I study this. My own heart just gets ripped up going, man, I've got work to do in my life. i got things I need to do. And anything that is here, and I know the elders would say the same thing, we serve as examples, uh, but any righteousness is not of our own, it is of Jesus Christ, and we are all people of the grace of God. And yet we come to this section here in Scripture because we need to understand elders. We need to understand the role of elders, and not just elders, we need to understand what the measure of a godly man is. I read a startling, really saddening statistic this week about the American family. Listen to this. In 2019, just in 2019, there were around 15 million families with a female householder and no spouse present in the United States. That's at least 15 million kids without a father in America, just in 2019. Every month, one million children will learn that their family will be broken through divorce. One million every month. 50% of all marriages fail, and I actually think the percentage is higher than that now, and that's whether you claim to be a Christian or not. The state with the highest percentage of divorces is Nevada. Legalized prostitution, the selling of sex, the defilement of the female body, the lure of drugs, 
and alcohol, gambling, and partying. The family is under attack. It's always been under attack, and now we can see that Satan is winning this battle. Satan knows that if he can destroy a family, he can destroy a community, he can destroy a state, he can destroy a nation, he can destroy individuals. And it's not just Christians who say this, even those who would, say, who would claim to be unbelievers and have no affiliation to Christianity at all would say the same thing. I saw an article in the New York Times, it was written maybe seven or eight years ago, and the article said this, the family is the nucleus of civilization and the basic social unit of society. Aristotle wrote that the family is, is nature's established association for the supply of mankind's everyday, need, everyday wants. It says this, Research clearly shows that the institution of the family is the first form of community and government and as Michael Novak said, the first, best, and original department of health, education, and welfare. For a civilization to succeed, the family must succeed. And right now, it's not. Today, more than half of all births to American women under 30 occur outside of marriage and out of wedlock. Birth rate in the United States has passed 40%. Then he says this, if we have stronger families... We have stronger schools, stronger churches, stronger communities with less poverty and less crime. The family is the linchpin of society, both economically and socially. No surprise to us who understand what God's blueprint is for marriage, right? God formed the institution of the family and marriage for this specific reason. He designed the family to be a place of connection. He designed the family to be a place of community, of love, of security, where you learn trust, where you learn social skills, where you learn to love the Lord, where you impart these truths down to your children. In many ways, the, the family is just a microcosm of the church, both with the purpose to glorify God The family is so crucial to the health of societies and the health of individuals. And the family is a beautiful picture of the love of Jesus Christ to his own church. That Satan wants it entirely destroyed, completely destroyed. And he hasn't started this process 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. The process of destroying the family started back in the garden at the Garden of Eden. It was under attack then, it's under attack now. And Satan's, hair, Satan's crosshairs are set on the family. He hates the family. He hates everything it stands for. And he wants to destroy your family. He wants to separate your family. Because if he can separate your family, he can get you isolated and alone, and he can then destroy you. And the way that Satan attacks your family is through your own selfishness. We've been taught since we're kids to be independent. We've been taught in the school system to have this humanistic 
form on life that you can handle anything apart from God. Be your own person. You do you. You be you. It's all about you. And this is exactly how Satan attacks your family through you. Your own selfish gain, your own selfish pride. He convinces men and women that the most important person in the relationship is you. It's all about you. It's all about your feelings. It's all about your needs. It's all about your felt wants. It's all about the next purchase. It's all about what's going to make you happy. It's all about your freedoms. And he slowly pulls the family apart. First, mentally, you become disengaged. Next, spiritually, you don't need God. You don't have time for God. Then emotionally, where it's all about you and your needs aren't getting met, until finally there's physical separation. And what happens then is the family ends up looking like a bunch of people under one roof that is lonely and isolated and disconnected from one another, distant and cold. Kids are more concerned about the next purchase than they are about the next relationship they can engage in. And Satan's done a great job of this, hasn't he? Let's influence the culture first to get you to believe that it's all about you, and then let's infiltrate the family with that same thinking. Satan just wants to feed on the flesh, feed on your desire for independence and lack of authority in your life, feed on the selfishness, and all of that leads to individualism and isolation. And the family just ends up being a bunch of disconnected people. Parents aren't connected. Parents to kids aren't connected. Kid to kid are not connected. And what you have then is a broken family. And that's not the design for the home, is it? That's not what the home's supposed to be. God's design for the home and God's design for marriage is to be the deepest and sweetest, most open and connected relationship that you can have on this earth. Marriage was designed for companionship and teamwork and intimacy and laughter where you carry one another's burdens, where you strive for godliness together, where you go through the difficulties of life together and you you hold one another during those times. It's why Peter called it in 1 Peter that, that marriage is the grace of life, the goodness of God in your life through your marriage. The question then is this, Where do you find someone to be an example of a healthy marriage? Who do you go to? Who do you look to to say, I want a healthy marriage. I I want a healthy, healthy family. Where do I go? Where do I look? Who do I turn to? Well, Titus tells us. The example is the elder in the church. The example is the godly man that's been appointed an elder in the church. Look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. So you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, but an overseer, 
as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Where do you look to find someone that has an example family, a godly family? You look to the elder. He's the example. That's what elders are to do. To be above reproach in the way that they lead their family spiritually. And this is what I want you to notice this morning as we jump into this text here, as we start to talk about uh, this aspect of a godly man, of godly leadership, is that a godly man leads his family spiritually. He loves and leads his family. It starts with a love for his wife, as it is in the order here, and then it goes down to the children. And this man, this godly man, has established in his home a culture of godliness and a culture of discipleship. I just read it, but let me just give you a little bit of context here as we jump into that, as now we understand what is at, at stake here and what, is, uh, what uh, Paul wanted Titus to know about elders and to establish here. We've studied this over the last uh, two weeks now, um, that the purpose of this book, the purpose of this entire book, is that Titus was to go in and to establish leadership in these various churches around the island of Crete. He needed to establish healthy leaders. And so what Paul does is he writes Titus this letter. Um, this letter would be used as he would circulate around the island and he would show people, hey, this is from Paul. This is what he asked me to do. Uh, this would authenticate his ministry. And the very first thing he does is when he gets to a city and there's a group of believers there, he takes that group of believers and he establishes the leadership there in that local assembly. And he, char and he charges them with these two things, establish the leadership and put in order what remains. The church needs a healthy leader. The church needs someone uh, that can organize the flock, someone that can protect the flock, feed the flock, take care of the flock. And he is called to appoint elders then in the church. We talked a little bit about elders last time, and I won't go entirely into the office of an elder within the church. We're we're looking more at the character of an elder. And so basically what, what Paul is instructing Titus is this. Find somebody in the church with these qualities who can set the example for the rest of the flock so that, that he can be somebody worth imitating. He's someone that, that people can follow. Essentially he's saying this. Find somebody that, that leads in integrity. Find somebody that leads in his family. Find somebody that leads in his conduct. Find somebody that leads in his teaching. And it's not just a standard for elders. This is the standard for godliness. The Apostle Paul raises the bar, or you say, God raises the bar on what a godly man is. And the men that are worth following. Men that care enough to be able to lead their own family, and in leading their own family, they're able to lead the church. 
So there's two things that, we look, that we've looked at. One thing that we've looked at, and we'll look at the second one this morning. The first one is this. These, these men that are appointed in every town, the elders in the church, number one, they must have integrity. All right, we talked about that last week. There's no charge against them. Any charge against them would not stand in court. They're not perfect, but they have integrity. Secondly is this then. They must lead their family. Number two, they must lead their family. You say, well, why, why is this so important? I mean, really, it's just right at the top there. It's the first kind of couple characteristics here. We're not even just barely jumping in. And the first thing uh, that Titus here learns or that, that Paul shares with us is that he must be able to lead his family. Well, if you would look over with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, the, the kind of the the, the mirrored uh, uh, section of Scripture here that talks about the leader, the elder. In verse 4 of First uh, Timothy 3, it says this, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The first place you look, to see if a man can lead someone spiritually is first in his marriage and then second in his children. Does this man have the ability to bring someone to Christ? Does he have the ability to disciple those in his family? Does he have the ability to, to love someone through hardship and love someone and care for someone and disciple someone through difficulties and trouble? Can he lead his wife? And can he lead his family? Do his children respect him enough to follow his lead? Does he command the, the proper amount and necessary amount of authority within the home to be able to lead his family spiritually? We say, well, then does, it, does a leader have to, have to be, does an elder have to be married? Well, well, no. If he's not married and he does not have children, then you have to look elsewhere to see if he is leading in discipleship. You have to look in other avenues of his life to see if discipleship is happening somewhere else, but the primary place to look for a man to see if he is worthy uh, of God's calling to be an elder, to see if he is a shepherd, a pastor, is to look at his family. Does he lead his wife? Does he lead his children? Does he lead at all? And you evaluate then the marriage, and you evaluate the family. So there's two aspects here about the family leadership that I want to point out to you. Actually, we'll probably only do one today, and we'll get to the, the second one, because they're both so, so incredibly important. Number one is this, faithfulness in marriage. Faithfulness in marriage. The first qualification, specific qualification, that... Titus gives to us is this. If anyone is above reproach, umbrella statement. Here's the first qualification. The husband of one wife. An elder is a one-woman man. Or it could be translated this, a one-woman husband. You say, well, what exactly does that mean? Because I'm sure that could possibly mean a lot of things. Well, 
we know that uh, uh, Paul is not taking a shot at polygamy in the sense that only elders shouldn't have multiple wives. <laughs> He's saying the entire church should not have multiple wives. So this isn't a shot straight at polygamy. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 2, you can see there that he addresses all believers that they should have only one wife. Paul is not saying that an elder is to be married. Marriage is not the key that gets you into leadership. It's not like, well, I, I got to wait my turn, and then finally, okay, now I'm married, now I can be a leader. In fact, Timothy was even told the young Young people in the church are not to let people look down on your youth, but set an example for the believer. And even Paul himself, during this time when he wrote this, was probably not married himself. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse, verse 5. Paul is not explicitly talking about divorce and remarriage either. The Bible does say that there are occasions for a man to divorce his wife, and that is if his wife has been unfaithful, his wife has abandoned the family. That man is then free to divorce her and even to remarry. We know that God hates divorce. He makes only those two provisions for it, but that's not here what the Apostle Paul is getting at with Titus because of the various scenarios that would be there. Being a one-woman man, being a one-woman husband, listen closely, it means that you are entirely faithful to the woman with whom you have married. The woman which you chose and married at the altar before God and man to be your bride is the one that you are in love with is the one that you cherish, is the one that you provide and protect, the one that you guide and lead and take responsibility for. That's a one-woman man. And the man of God would not have this called into question. There's no fornication, there's no adultery, there's no divorce or remarriage outside of the biblical grounds of Scripture. This man does not bring reproach on the church or blemish the church, or confuse the church with immoral behavior and questioning whether or not he loves his own wife. He's pure in his relationship. He loves and cherishes his wife, and the thought of another woman does not cross his mind. He's devoted to her and her alone. I want you to do something with me. I mentioned this earlier, and we're going to go look at it now. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, because we have to understand the foundation of marriage to get this right, and for us to understand what marriage actually is, because marriage has been tossed and turned and flipped upside down on its head in recent years. In Genesis chapter 2, God gives us the very first wedding ceremony. I mean, just think of this. You got Adam and Eve, and we all talk about, hey, who, who married you? Well, we had this pastor that we knew marry us. Well, who married you? Yeah, we had a good friend of ours marry us. Hey, Adam and Eve, who married you? God. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, I guess he performed the word first wedding ceremony, didn't he? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. 
This is the entirety of the wedding ceremony, the, all of it. There's no songs, there's no candles, there's no procession, there's no groomsmen, there's no bride. There's not, it's between the couple and God, and this is the entire thing in one statement. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his wife and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God, what he does is he creates man. He creates Adam. You guys know the story. It's right here. You can look back in Genesis chapter 2 and see this. He, he creates man. Man falls asleep. God puts man to sleep and recognizes, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. Amen, men? It's not good for man to be alone. And so what God does is he creates woman. Adam wakes up from this deep sleep and he's like, whoa, where did you come from? Creates Adam and Eve. Immediately, God creating man and God creating woman, both in the likeness of God, both in the image of God, both very valuable to God, both reflecting the glory of God in their life. The first thing he does is he brings them together in marriage. He marries them. And the word that he uses here, it's a great word. It's a fascinating word in the, in the Hebrew. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his wife and his mother and, underline this, hold fast to his wife. Circle that and write underneath it, write this word, glue. Glue. I mean, God has a sense of humor sometimes, doesn't he? The Hebrew word here for hold fast is glue. And so what, what he's saying here is this. I am going to take man and I am going to take woman and I am going to glue them together in a covenant before God. And everything is great when you're glued together until you start to pull it apart. Then you feel what? You feel stuck. You feel stuck in your marriage. Why? You're trying to pull it apart. You don't feel stuck in your marriage if you don't want to pull it apart. This is the covenant that is made before God and man that, that you hold fast to your wife. You're, you, you, you're, you're glued to your wife. You're glued to your husband. Marriage is very important to God, and this is a design that he made. While we're very different in different ways between male and female, we have made a commitment before God that we are going to be loyal and faithful to our spouse. And we know this, that we get married because we understand that the two of us together can better reflect God than we could apart from one another. That when you are together, that, that the two become one entity, which is uh, the sum of greater than their parts, right? Your relationship, you're connected physically, emotionally. You reflect the glory of God better as you carry one another's burdens. As my struggles become her struggles, as my hurts become her hurts, and her hurts become my hurts, and we build each other up, and we encourage one another, and we love, and we care for one another, and we do that, it's a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and His love for the church. It's no wonder that Satan wants it destroyed. I die to self for my wife. She dies to self for me. 
And when you do that, it reflects the glory of God. How long did it take Satan before he destroyed the first marriage? Not long, right? What's the very first thing he did? The very first thing Satan did is he ruined the relationship between God and man. He brought sin into the world. What's the second thing he did? He ruined the relationship between man and woman. Turn to chapter 4 and look. What's the next thing he did? He destroyed the relationship between child to child, Cain and Abel. It didn't take long for us to understand this. Satan hates a godly family. Because a godly family reflects the glory of God. The godly family, as I said, is a, is a microchasm of the church. Leadership, service, love for one another, encouragement for one another. And we need to understand this, that when we get married, we, we are not getting, uh, getting uh, married in the sense that we're just signing a contract because, that, look, uh, contracts can be broken, but a covenant and a promise cannot. Albert Moeller in his book, We Cannot Be Silent. If you've never read the book, you need to read the book, We Cannot Be Silent by Albert Moeller. He, he draws this conclusion as to, to why... Uh, there's so many divorces in America outside of what we understand the, the, the Bible to say. This is more of a historically looking at it. He dates it back to a, a law that came out in California in 1969 called the No-Fault Divorce Law. It was signed into law by then-Governor Ronald Reagan. No-Fault Divorce was sold to the populace as a humanizing effort to allow marriages that were declared irretrievable and irretrievably broken, to be terminated without the necessity of court trial, painful testimony, or some finding guilt. Basically, this was a guilt-free way to have a divorce. Not long after that, more and more states started to sign on to this law, and since the 1970s, divorces skyrocketed, leading to consequences many did not see coming. It broke up marriages, it split families, and boys especially, caused by absentee fathers, felt the most pain. The feeling of abandonment and having to choose sides. Fathers generally found themselves in a stronger economic position five years later, and the wife and children were left reeling economically. He says this, ultimately, no-fault divorce became, whether acknowledged or not, a way of making every single marriage provisional. Marriage shifted from being a covenant into being a mere contract, just like any other, that should be considered in force only insofar and for so long as both parties feel equally committed to the contract. Marriage isn't a contract. Marriage is a covenant between you and your spouse and God. And first, you must choose your love, and then you must love your choice. And the husband, you listen, take responsibility for this. They take responsibility in the marriage. They lead 
They create the culture. They create the values. They determine what is best spiritually for the family. He's the one that determines the priorities of the family, how to protect the family, and how to best display the glory of God first in the marriage and then in the children. It all starts at the top. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 25. Husbands, love your wife. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. Therefore, here it is, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be glued to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the blueprint for a healthy marriage. Husbands lead. Husbands set the example. Husbands create the culture. Husbands build within their family a spiritual structure unit, and they deeply, deeply Love their wife. Committed to her and her alone. As a godly man sets the course for his family, he sets the course for his own marriage. Wives encourage and submit to their husbands as they, they encourage them to lead the way God wants them to lead. And wives, you speak courage into your husband to do this. Gently, patiently, lovingly, yet desirous for your own husband to lead in the family because this is the design for the family and you know there is an enemy in Satan who wants it destroyed. And as you do this, men, as you pursue your wife in love and in sacrifice and you lay aside personal ambition and selfishness, God is honored in your marriage, and the glory of Jesus Christ shines bright through your marriage and your family, and it is attracted to the world to see. In fact, you love your, your, your wife so much, you want to lead her so well, that the thought of adultery, the thought of addiction to pornography, the thought of abandonment, 
the thought of spiritually abandoning your family or physically abandoning your family never crosses your mind because why? You're a one woman man. You're devoted to her. You've got a covenant. And you've made before God. You don't have time for any other woman. Not in your thoughts and not in your actions. You love your wife. You love the Lord. And you want to honor the Lord in the way that you lead and love your wife. Job said this, if you can find the book of Job. In Job 31, he says this. This is so good. Really easy to commit to memory in Job 31, verse 1. This is so good for us men to be reminded of these things, right? He says this. Job 31, 1. Young men, pay close attention to this. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? I've made a promise with my eyes, a covenant. I'm not going to look anywhere else. I'm not going to go anywhere else. Look over with me in Proverbs chapter 5. In Proverbs chapter 5, King Solomon comes to the end of his life after having 700 uh, concubines, 300 wives, an old sage of a man and regrets every bit of it, understands the destruction of an adulterous woman. In Proverbs chapter 5, let's just read it together. We need, we need to read this, men especially. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of shields. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O son, listen to me. You could hear the pleading in this man's, in his voice to his sons. Listen, listen, listen. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Verse 5, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give honor to others and your ears to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of their strength and the laborers go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan and your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to instruction. I am at the brink of utter Ruin in, in the assembly, assembled congregation. 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad and streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. See, verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed, here it is, and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Look at this line. Be intoxicated always in her love. There's no room for anybody else. I'm intoxicated in love with my wife. 
Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden women and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his path. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. A sober reminding reminder regarding against the adulterous woman, guarding our eyes, being disciplined in our minds and in our hearts, reminding ourselves of the covenant that we've made before God. There's no time for anything else. My mind, my heart, my eyes, there's no reason for them to wander. I want to set the culture of godliness in our home. I want to lead in this way. I want to lead my family. I, I, I want to uh, be someone who gives great attention to my wife. Great attention. And I can tell you this, at least this is the story for Aaron and I. Our marriage has not been easy. We've had our times where we've cried on the couch looking at each other in the eye. Marriage is not easy. Two sinners coming together under one roof. It takes hard work. It takes discipline. To have a healthy marriage in public, you've got hard work going on in private. And men, take the responsibility in leading your wife to say, hey, I don't like where we're at in our marriage. I want to be someone who leads our family and is faithful in our family. And you do the hard work to get there. And you say, okay, I don't have it where I want it to be. Who can I go and talk to? Who can I go and see? Well, this is why you establish healthy elders in the church, because they're the example that you go to and say, hey, what do you do to have a healthy marriage? Because I want what you have. You set the example, and you go, and you get help. But it takes work. It takes hard work. But the blessing that comes from it, the blessing of God and the hand of God's favor that comes when you do it the way God designed it to be is endless. And so this is what Titus says to us. First characteristic. He's the husband of one wife. You see that in a man. You recognize in the man. You see his faithfulness. He leads his, fam- he leads his wife spiritually. He's loyal to her. He leads her. He loves her. He follows her lead. He, she follows his lead. His kids know that dad loves his mom and no one else. The church sees that. This man's worthy of imitation. He's worthy of an example to the flock of God. That's a man you put in leadership in the church. There's a second qualification. And I'll just tell you what it is because we're not going to talk about it this week. It's this faithfulness in parenting. Faithfulness in parenting. So first, you're faithful in leading your wife. Then secondly, it's faithfulness in parenting your children. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. 
Lord, thank you for this reminder, this encouragement. Um, Lord, to the men out there who desire to be this kind of a leader in their home, Lord, I pray that you would grant them the grace to do that. I pray that you'd give them a desire to lead, give them a deeper desire and a deeper love for their wife. I pray that they'd be even reminded of the commitment that they have made, the covenant they have made, that they too, like Job, would be able to make a covenant with their eyes. Not just with their eyes, they'd make a covenant with their mind and their thinking and a covenant with their actions. Never even a thought to love someone else. Never even a thought. Never even a gaze to look somewhere else. But faithfulness. Faithfulness to the one that was chosen to be their bride. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless those marriages. You would be honored. In Jesus' name, amen.